and being 21 and in that age, you haven't really had your body conditioned or your brain conditioned to sorrow. And I think people are quick to sorrow sometimes as they get older. That's Dick Harris, who served in World War II as a pilot on an extraordinary mission. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I am again Benny Mathers, producer for Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. We are yet again reaching out to Paul, who is down in Palm Springs, staying safe as always. Paul, how are we doing today and what's up for the show? Well, we're doing great. It's going to be actually in the hundreds here this week. So it's getting a little uh, hot down here. On the toasty side. On the toasty side. Yeah, definitely. Coming up in today's show, I'm going to be talking to about four different people. And one is a rebroadcast of an interview I had in the fall with a gentleman by the name of Dick Harris. Fascinating story. He was a World War II pilot. I won't go into great introduction now because I will do an extended introduction in just a few minutes, but uh, incredible story. And the reason I'm rebroadcasting that, I, again, I did it in the fall. But uh, I just learned in the last month that he passed away at 98 years old. And I'm telling you, this guy was as sharp as a tack. So um, in his honor, I definitely would like to have the listeners hear his incredible journey. Amber Lillistrom, she is a brand expert. And she's going to be talking about being true to yourself and to your company. I want to spend some time talking about being organized. I have a commentary on that and how important that is if you are running your own business. And finally today, I wanna talk about the pitfalls of partnerships. That if you're considering going into business for yourself, really think it through if you need a partner. So those are some of the subjects we have today, Benny. And so let's just come back with my interview with Dick Harris in just a few moments. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit voicesofexperience.com and take a five minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. The following are just a few observations from Amber Liliastrom. I think one is that they try to do it the way someone else is doing it. And they, they literally try to rinse and repeat a formula for someone else's brand success. And the reason that doesn't work is because you can't be anyone other than you. And when, and what lives beneath that is a lack of confidence and a lack of self-belief. And I think ultimately culturally in our country and worldwide, we have a self, you know, appreciation problem. I'm going to use the word self-love, but that might be a little too, you know, fluffy for your audience. (laughs) So, but it's, a, it's really about like self-confidence and really stepping into what it is you want to do without looking over your shoulder and saying, is this right? Should I be doing this? It's like you think about the people who are the most successful. They're the ones who just, they're kind of, you think they're crazy. And they just go for it because they're, they're passionate and they're excited and they know that they can make a big impact.
That was a name given by Allied pilots during World War II. The hump was the eastern end of the Himalayan mountains, which Allied pilots flew over and through, and unfortunately into, while bringing supplies in from India to China. I say into because it was an extremely dangerous area, very hard to navigate, and it resulted in numerous crashes and loss of life. The Allies had a European strategy. It was Europe first, meaning that they wanted to defeat the Nazis first before moving on to the Pacific. China was occupied by an estimated million Japanese soldiers. The fuel and supplies helped China from being totally overrun by the Japanese, and it also helped the Allies by bogging down the Japanese troops in China so they couldn't fight elsewhere. I give you this background because I had the opportunity to visit with one of the pilots who flew missions from India to China, many missions over the years, again, transporting fuel and equipment. Tracy Harris, a friend of mine who lives in West Seattle, told me about the hump in a casual conversation. I was fascinated by what he was talking about, and then he revealed that his father was one of the pilots. His name is Dick Harris, and he lives at a retirement community in West Seattle. He recently turned 98, but his memory and his thoughts are razor sharp. So now you'll be able to listen to a casual conversation I had with him at his apartment at the retirement center about World War II. Tracy, again, his son, participated, thankfully, in the conversation. I refer to Palm Springs at a point in our discussion, and the reason I brought that up is that Dick Harris trained in Palm Springs. It was a good place to practice because the San Jacinto Mountains, which surround Palm Springs, are about 10,000 feet, have a lot of updrafts and turbulence, a great training place to prepare for the Himalayas. Dick graduated from law school at the University of Washington and was appointed to assistant to the U.S. attorney prior to going into private practice. We also branched off in a discussion about keeping your mind active. He is 98, and as I mentioned, he hasn't missed a beat. I suggest you listen to the advice he gives. He knew all the heavyweights in politics in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, former Governor Albert Rosalini, former U.S. Senator Warren Magnuson. We touched on those times as well. But let's pick up with one of the most harrowing flights that you can possibly imagine. One was uh, taking off in Mullenbury, that's where I was stationed, in India, in a big tea patch. We had uh, everything there, the, our field hospital, our airplane equipment, and uh, gasoline storage, where the tr one of the trains would unload their load there. And, and uh, I had some pipe that I was going to deliver for this Burma Road, uh, not Burma, Lido Road pipeline. They were going to lay a pipeline along with the road to get gasoline into China because he obviously didn't know how long they would run when this war was going to last. So I had a load of pipe and the only way they would do it was they stacked the pipe in the back end and then made a uh, bulkhead out of two by fours laid against the aluminum sidewalls of the air, airplane and I could just see if I had to stop in a hurry that pipe was going to keep right on coming right through the two by fours and the radio operator fighting the pilot and the co-pilot and so on takeoff from Mullenbury I blew a front tire why I don't know it just blew off the one on the right and I'd never had that I've never practiced that before and that was a 
very, very... On takeoff? On takeoff. So now you knew you had to land with one. Well, fortunately it was on takeoff, and I blew a tire on landing. Lord only knows what would have happened then. But I cut the throttles, and then you think, then you're going to the right, to the veering off the runway, and got a ground loop, and that damn pipe's going to come through and make you look like a piece of Swiss cheese. So it was a fight and a hassle, but obviously everything came out all right. And the other one was after I've another flight later on during that deal, I got on the other side, and we had <coughs> a problem in altitudes in India where we loaded up, we were at sea level. In China and Kunming, where we went 90% of the time, it's over 6,000 feet high with mountains around it, just like uh, Palm Springs there. And uh, uh, on the way over, you you have to go through turbulence. That's tremendous sometimes. Imagine. The radio operator, it's great to have, but only during good weather because uh, in, in bad weather, they can't get any reception. The thunderbolt was too loud. So he had nothing else to do but to go to sleep. And we'd hit a downdraft, and the next thing you know, he'd be on the ceiling instead of on the floor. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we got over to China on the other side over Kunming, and it was socked in. By that, I mean the, the, um, weather facility means that the altitude was about a thousand feet or 500 feet uh, the base of the cloud and then the fog on the bottom and the uh, looking straight ahead was about a half a mile and we didn't have uh, an opportunity to come in and just land we had a stack over the top of the landing field and wait our turn by going back and forth well, eventually they say, well, it's too close. We're closing the field. You come in now on your own own risk. We have no assurance that you're, we suggest you unload your, dump your load and go back to India. And I looked at our <coughs> gas supply and I realized I'm not sure we can make it all the way back to India. So we're gonna have to go and land and told the other two guys this is the decision I made. Does anybody see anything wrong with it? They said, you're the captain, go ahead. So I said, well, we'll stay here and wait our turn to go down and land. And we, we did, and we went back on, on instruments, seeing nothing but that inside of the airplane, hearing nothing but the dip-dot, dip-dot, which is the, means that you're on a course Radio beacon. Radio beacon onto the field for a landing and go down every every 500 feet. Well, the guys were going down and couldn't find the runway, so they pulled back up again. Mm -hmm. Then you had to clear it and go up and let them have the, the go around and come back and try it again. Someone says, well, we're giving up. We're going out in parachute. And so uh, that wasn't encouraging to hear that, but... Let's try our luck at it. And fortunately, we went down, found the runway, made our landing, jumped out of the airplane, and I laid right down on the ground and kissed dirt. <laughs> I can imagine. Jeez. Yeah. 
scares me. I'll bet it's scaring me hearing it. I wasn't even there. I mean, heck, my I'm upset when my uh, drink gets spilled a little bit in turbulence. <laughs> Asking about the war effort, we look back at a very patriotic war. I mean, we yeah. were attacked in Pearl Harbor. What do you feel about that? Looking back, war—it's just hell, and and you know, since you experienced it, you were involved with it. Sometimes I think it's easier for us when we are not involved, a lot of people are more pro-war, in my opinion, sometimes, who aren't serving in it. And how do you feel about that? I was never in, in, in the kind of war they had in Vietnam and Korea, where you're there seeing bodies on the ground and bombs blowing people apart. I didn't have that. And at being 21 and in that age, you haven't really had your body conditioned or your brain conditioned to sorrow and I think people are quick to sorrow sometimes as they get older and I think the powers that be at that time knew that and let's get kids that will get on a motorcycle and commit Harry Carey and that's pretty much what flying was at the beginning because so many got killed during training. The precious part of life that you, you, you see this and then say hey Vietnam or something that, hey, let's really make sure that we want to do this. Is this really something in our national yeah. interest to make this investment in lives? Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't think you can train a fellow to mentally to accept the bloodshed like some of these people see it. Of course, we have a few quirks that don't give a damn about anything and shoot people for some reason. But the average American citizen, I believe, his training and what he's had and his mother and his dad and the good life he's had in the United States makes a perfect human being out of him until we start destroying him with some of these mechanical things we got and the superpower crap we see on TV. In fact, they have an article in the paper this morning, thank God, that says dementia probably is caused by over-drinking, of course, lack of reading, like keeping the mind active as you get older and exercising when you're young and had an opportunity to do so. And if you were fortunate enough during your lifestyle to do those things like exercise, whether it be walking, golfing, hand wall swimming, don't just lay around and watch television. Read a book once in a while. In fact, reading a book I read one here the other, other day that I called The Substantial President, about Harry Truman coming in and only having 82 days to, to make up this, somebody's mind to drop that bomb. This is the inner workings. It's this marvelous book. Well, what I understand, and we can verify this, is that Ro or he knew nothing about the nuclear bomb when he became no. president. It was like yeah. Roosevelt dies, they come into the room and say, Mr. President, sit down. There's something called the Manhattan Project going on. I didn't know what that was. And he didn't, well, what is that? And then, isn't that shocking to think about this day and age that the vice president would have no knowledge of a project this big? Well, he, that's why this book is so good. He came in the accidental. There were other people in the Democratic Party that deserved it and wanted it more and were pushing for it. Henry Wallace, uh, Simpson, and some of these fellows, well known. But Roosevelt, God bless his soul, said, well, what's this guy that's running this committee? What's his name? Didn't even know his name. It's Truman. Okay, let's run him then. 
his committee was investigating the expenditures that we were doing in the Lend-Lease program and doing a very good job of it. And my God, they, they said, all right, well, I'll... Let's I'll bring him inside. Bring him inside. <laughs> he didn't know his first name. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Uh, well, the other thing I heard, read, maybe this is in the book or not, about Truman and Roosevelt, there's only like two pictures of them together that's in existence. That's oh, about wow. right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's how much they were apart. I mean, they didn't really well, do much together. He wasn't in the inner circle. Post-traumatic stress, we hear about that all the time now. And But when World War II, and, and people thought there was nothing it. about that. You were expected to come back in and just go back into society and right. without any fanfare. There were some guys that had that problem. There weren't very many, though. There weren't very, one of them was on our honor flight. Yeah. He remember he said, that, uh, it was like going in, I'm out of the... Out of the toilet now, or something? Yeah, I can't remember what he said. Was he, he said, Navy? I I think he was Army. He might have been Army. He said, thank for the fight, because it was a very, uh, everybody would say, thank you for what you've done. We're thank proud. you for your service. Thank you for your service. Little kids, um, uh, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, meeting us at the airport. Very nicely. We had a little, probably eight-year-old boy come up to us in Arlington and and say, uh, you know, I'm free because you were brave. Thank you. you know. <laughs> well, that must make you feel oh, good. God, oh, yeah. man. At this point in the interview, I wanted to shift gears a bit and move into Dick Harris's growing up in Seattle and talk to some of the characters that he knew. But Seattle was a pretty corrupt town, I understand, in the yeah, 60s. Is that correct? Time. Yeah. The police were doing a lot of shenanigans and... There was a lot of shenanigans going on. Yeah, but it wasn't any big time stuff. Mm -hmm. Little penny stuff here Although there. the FBI didn't think much of them. Dick Auerbach was an old pal of mine. He was head of the chief agent here at the uh, FBI when I was up in the U.S. Attorney's, Attorney's Office, so we got to know one another quite well. What's interesting, Honor... You know, you said that you got to be friends with all of these Republicans, but you were a Democrat. Yeah. And you said you guys were all friends. Yeah. A little different than today. I mean, you, the way yeah. you said it was, hey, I was in favor of the passing game. They wanted the running game, but we're both trying to win the game, you know, for the country. Yeah. And now it's... Uh, we're all on this earth just for a little while. Let's enjoy it, not be up in the mind. I know the name Chuck Carroll. Was he mayor too, or what was what was, he was a prosecuting attorney prosecutor that's forever? Okay, I remember that name very well. Forever, he was a very good football player too. That's where it was, UW, right? Right. Did he play there? Yes, yeah. I remember that. Reading about that, anyhow, oh. that he was at the UW. Yeah, American name. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of politics going on back then. Yeah, but it was fun then, and like you say, you lose one, you win one. You don't start belittling a guy. And you agreed with each other occasionally. Yeah. Was the World's Fair a, a game changer in your mind for this community? Because you were yeah. here long before. I don't think World, World's Fair changed. I think it was it's changed in the last 20 years considerably to where I don't recognize it as. I used to walk for 3rd Avenue and Spring Street where my off down to the courthouse and I'd see two or three people on the street every time I go that I knew and I knew the shop fellows that yeah I knew knew Nordstrom the old man so who else, what other characters did you know around town oh I knew Rosalie used to play golf with Al he also wanted to run against 
Pomeroy for mayor, and we've talked him out of that for after we got a few a thousand bucks out of him, and, or gave to him. That was in the 50s, probably? Pardon? Was that in the 50s, 1950s? Yeah. Because then he ran for governor, and he won. Oh, yeah. He's a good politician. Yeah. Real nice Was guy. he corrupt? No. He'd take a bribe, but he'd always lay cards on the table and tell you why he was doing it. And he could have. He was senator from Rainier Valley. He could have ran against Al in the primary and cost us a lot of money. So we were down at Bartels one time. I'll make you guys at First in Madison. Bartell Drugstore. We're sitting there having a cup of coffee. Not having a cup of with a cup of coffees in front of us and he says, I'm thinking about running now. He says, I don't want to, but I get so much pressure. <laughs> this, is, this is Al Pomeroy. Al Pomeroy. Yeah. And of course, you never talk to anybody without having somebody with you to back up your story. And what do you think about Warren Magnuson? Your thoughts on him? Real good guy. I only met him a couple of times, but he really knew how to move. He knew how to do things in Washington. My thanks to Dick Harris for sharing his wisdom and experience with us today and to Tracy Harris for setting up this interview. Now, if you want to find out more about this, you can just Google Hump or The Hump. Again, it's fascinating. I've barely touched the surface about all the ins and outs of this story. It's incredible. My commentary today is on organization, the real importance of being organized and how that helps you succeed in business. It is one of my questions I ask on the self-employment quiz. Are you organized? In real estate, the motto is location, location, location. In business, it's organization, organization, organization. Time is your most precious commodity. The best use of your time should be spent selling your product or service. No one can do that like you. It is your vision. Don't abdicate that to someone else. Contract out repetitive functions like bookkeeping. Also, think about this. Saving two hours commute time a day will save you one full year of productivity in approximately 10 years. Organization or lack of organization often makes the difference between success and failure in the business. Success in business is all about developing systems that make doing your job at various levels easier and more profitable with each passing day. And the more organized you are, the faster and easier it will be to manage your business and make money. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Well, welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and thank you, Benny, so much again today for doing such a wonderful job. And so I want to address the what I consider to be a major downfall for a lot of people going into business, and that is partnerships. Visualize for a moment you have a house or an apartment, 
but you come home tonight and half the home or the apartment is burnt to the ground. That would be considered a disaster. But the same function takes hold when you bring a partner into your business before you even get out of the starting gate. And that is that you give half your business away. And when you have profit margins of 5, 10, 15, maybe 20% if you're lucky, that is devastating to a business. Now, the question is, why do you need a partner? The traditional reasons are that maybe they have strengths that you don't have, and that's fair. Remember, we're talking about a very small business trying to get out of the chute. And I suggest that if you, let's say, don't have skills that you need to fill, you don't need to have a partner do that per se, that you hire a bookkeeper or you hire someone who's good at finances and you're the front person out selling your business. So hire free agents to do that. Secondly, I think uh, a lot of people go into partnerships because they don't really have the confidence to feel they can do this on their own. And if you're in that category, then I would suggest you really take a strong look as to whether business is something that is right for you now, because you have to have that confidence that you can hire the right people and you can make the right connections and cover the skills that you may not have. Um, I think that a lot of people look at uh, what are the types of things that you really need to succeed in business. And I had that same lack of confidence when I started in publishing. And there was an individual who was co-publishing with me. And I wanted to be a partner. I said, uh, you know, let's go in this together because I didn't have the skills I felt to do this. But he discouraged that. And I believe going forward from that point, that he was right. And I'm really glad that we did not have a partnership because partnerships then become messy. And once you've signed on the bottom line, it's like some people start thinking it's just human nature. Well, I'm doing more than you. We should be heading in this direction. And many partnerships deteriorate very quickly. There's not a lot of partnerships that I've seen work over the years. I was actually at one function not too long ago and someone came up to me and said, well, my uncle and his brother, they were in partnerships and they worked out great. And I said, well, there are exceptions. They do. And he said, yeah, it lasts for 20 years. And then it kind of blew up. And I said, well, that doesn't sound like a successful partnership. It blew up at the end. So all I'm submitting is that if you don't have the confidence to do this on your own, you don't exercise the good judgment that you must have when you're running your business, you need to be decisive and you need to execute be reliable. All those type of things, you should not need a partner. So that's what I submit. If someone has a different opinion on this, you can please give me a call at 206-459-5536 and I'll get it on the air. That's 206-459-5536. I want everybody to have a great rest of the week and we'll see you next time.